Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, a not-so-done deal for Hunter Biden. The plea agreement struck by the president's son unravels in a dramatic court hearing. The twist and turns from inside the courtroom and what this all means for the ongoing federal investigation. Plus, Mitch McConnell standing frozen mid-sentence for 23 seconds before the Senate minority leader was escorted away. He did return, but the whole incident is renewing questions about the 81-year-old's health. And new information tonight on the health of LeBron James's 18-year-old son, Bronny James. What we know about the tests that were done before his cardiac arrest. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, straight from The Source, what was supposed to be a 30-minute formality turned into almost three hours of drama as tonight Hunter Biden's plea deal hangs in limbo, raising new questions about where this leaves the president's son and his legal team. Hunter Biden entered the courtroom today prepared to plead guilty to two misdemeanor federal tax crimes and avoid prosecution on a gun charge. It all started with normal procedural questions as Hunter Biden explained his tax troubles and detailed his history of drug use. But things went off the rails when it came to the scope of his immunity deal on potential additional charges, say, for example, illegal foreign lobbying. The Justice Department said it would not make him immune to those potential charges, but the defense seemed to think that it would. The parties began furiously negotiating in the middle of court, and the judge later said she could not accept a plea agreement today. As the deal began to unravel, reporters who were in the room, in the courtroom, said that the president's son grew agitated and worried. The judge also raised what she called, quote, concerns about the constitutionality of the gun aspect of the deal. Three hours later, Hunter Biden exited the courtroom after pleading not guilty and being processed like any other defendant. House Republicans, who I should note tried to block the entire plea agreement before Hunter Biden showed up to court today, responded this way on Capitol Hill. I think it's all driven by the whistleblowers and and just how credible those individuals are and the fact that their testimony has not wavered. It collapsed because it was a sweetheart deal from a family that was being protected. Hunter Biden is getting a sweetheart deal that no other American who wasn't rich and had a father as the president would ever get, ever. If you believe the whistleblowers and what they're saying, no, this was a sweetheart deal. It was corrupt in terms of how it was handled. I'm joined now by CNN anchor and senior political correspondent, Abby Phillip, as well as a pair of former federal prosecutors, CNN chief legal analyst, Laura Coates and Shan Wu. Thank you all for being here tonight. Laura, I mean, Hunter Biden's attorneys clearly thought 
the, the immunity aspect of this was much broader. I mean, I think most people look at this and say, isn't this something they should have had figured out before they walked into that courtroom today? Of course they should have. The idea that you would not have fleshed out all the details to figure out whether this is a 360 plea deal. Am I going to have everything resolved right now arising out of this predicate set of facts? If I walk out of the courtroom today, can I kind of this with my hands and walk away? That this was not the dotting of the I's and crossing the T's is really confounding to me. The judge's role here, of course, normally is to, when you have the meeting of the minds between the prosecution and the defense team, essentially say, okay, my now role is only going to be to set the sentencing. You've agreed to everything else. You've had a colloquy that says, do you know what you're getting into, defendant? Are you aware of all the things you're giving up here? It seemed pretty clear that based on the absence of information and a certainty about the scope of this plea, Biden didn't necessarily have all the details in place to know what he was likely doing. And that's when the judge steps in. I will say, though, I don't think I've ever, I don't know you, Shan, I think in only maybe one or two instances I've ever seen a plea deal fall through the table. And that's when the defense counsel was ineffective and the defendant did not know that they had either had the plea offer extended to them or they now wanted to change their mind and say, look, I'll take my chances at trial. Yeah, I mean, clearly the judge seemed worried that Hunter Biden was not fully aware of the scope of this plea deal or how this would affect him. I mean, Shan, have you ever seen anything like this? Uh, Usually when they fall through, it's uh, either for what Laura was saying or there's a disagreement about the factual proffer, like the defendant doesn't think it actually went down that way. This was unusual not only because of how high profile the case was, um, but there was such ambiguity, and the prosecution had been saying it's still an ongoing investigation. In defense of the defense, I can see how they might have been more comfortable with ambiguity, saying, okay, let this go forward. If later there are charges that arise, we're going to say, hey, this was already covered in the plea deal. You can't charge him again. But for the prosecution, kind of inexcusable not to have that ironed out. And I think in retrospect, actually, we probably saw this coming. When this plea deal was first announced, there was that disagreement between what Hunter Biden's lawyers said, which was that this is the end of our client's involvement with the Department of Justice. It settles all the matters involving him. And then DOJ later came out and said, actually, this is this investigation is still open and it's still ongoing. I, I do think that uh, one of the elements of this that is probably not going to be appreciated in Washington because everything has to be partisan in one way or another is just sloppiness here, that there's a degree to which perhaps uh, DOJ didn't just make up their mind about how much this was going to cover and communicate that to Hunter Biden. And, you know, look, on the political side, people are going to say it's a sweetheart deal. It's going to it's evidence that, you know, the justice system is working. But I also think that what we might be witnessing here is people making mistakes, not doing their jobs thoroughly. And the judge stepping in in her role and saying, let's make sure that our our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed. Yeah, and the judge didn't even get to Republicans yesterday trying to block this deal from actually going through and from happening today. I mean, what she had more questions about, Laura, was like the fine print of the gun charge right. and how they were resolving that. I mean, right. what she was essentially saying, you know, part of it had agree- him agreeing to a two-year diversion program mm-hmm. that prohibited Hunter Biden from using drugs or drinking alcohol, but or, excuse me, using drugs or owning a firearm. But her question was, okay, if he violates these terms, how do we handle that? And they didn't seem to have an answer. This is such an important point because it's a minor civics lesson the judge tried to say, which is I'm part of the judicial branch. You're the executive. Your job is to actually decide prosecution terms. A diversion program normally is a pre-indictment decision by the prosecutor's office that says, look, 
As long as you're on the up and up, you don't commit any crimes, you do the domestic violence program or anger management or substance abuse treatment or any number of things, and you do not violate the terms we set forth for you, we're not even going to file this indictment. We're not going to charge you. But if you do something differently, we reserve the right to do so. The judge is normally not a part of that interaction because it's between the prosecutor and the defense counsel. People may remember, though, consent decrees, when which the Civil Rights Division normally, ta- normally will work with the DOJ, of course, and a local jurisdiction and say, a pattern and practice dispute with a police department. And they'll say, here, court, here is our contract. We're going to agree to do these changes to make sure that they will, in fact, institute the right changes to make equity available. And then we're going to file it with the court. And if they mess up, you can, of course, slam the book at them. This is not that. This is a pre-prosecutorial decision. And the judge is right to say, you cannot instruct me to decide whether or not um, Hunter Biden actually violates the terms and then say, now he gets to be charged. That would violate the whole premise. Yeah, and I think it's possible DOJ was trying to uh, maybe insulate themselves a little bit or maybe insulate from future administration changes as well. Usually it's completely in the prosecutor's discretion about if you've complied with diversion. But they tried to put it on to the court a little bit to say you'd have to do a fact-finding hearing to make sure that there really was a violation. And speaking of all of this and the politics surrounding this, of course, we've seen Republicans on Capitol Hill. We'll talk more about what they're saying on the campaign trail about this in a moment. But also today what we saw happen with Rudy Giuliani. This isn't a separate legal matter, obviously, but uh, it's still pertinent because he came out and essentially admitted that while he was acting as an attorney for Trump, that he did make false statements about those two election workers in Georgia who came out, who testified in front of the Jan 6 Congressional Committee about just the impact that it had on their life. I mean, what do you read as the significance of this? Is this Giuliani avoiding discovery, avoiding paying more legal fees? What's your sense of it? Yeah, it, it's a little bit puzzling because it's styled a Noah contendere, which means he's not contesting it, and yet he's still contesting it. He's still saying he had a First Amendment right to make these false statements, which he does not, particularly in court. So it seems like maybe he's trying to shortcut some of the proceeding to get to his substantive legal arguments, which he wants to make his constitutional claim. He wants to claim maybe these people weren't really that damaged by it. But this also comes, I mean, as he is, Rudy Giuliani is facing a world of legal trouble, essentially, not just from this Georgia defamation case. Yeah, I I mean, look, we'll have to see how this plays into the legal jeopardy that he really does face. But it does raise the prospect that Giuliani and perhaps a lot of other people who are embroiled in the January 6th uh, investigation that the special counsel is doing, but also the Georgia case that's yet to come to a conclusion, uh, these cases are going to be time intensive and extremely expensive. It's not easy to carry that legal burden. The former president uh, can have his super PAC or his PAC pay for the legal costs. Other people involved in this, whether they are people like Giuliani or people like Walt Nada, don't necessarily have the deep pockets to handle this. If you're Giuliani, uh, it probably wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to try to take some of the potential legal exposure off the table. But I'm not sure that we can say that just yet, especially considering we don't really know the scope of it yet. And this part about the defamation against these two individuals is only just a small part of the alleged scheme that he could be a part of. Absolutely. We'll see where that goes. Thank you all for joining. You can see more of Abby tonight. She is going to be hosting CNN Primetime up next at 10 p.m., so make sure you keep watching. Uh, Hunter Biden, of course, is not an elected official. He is not running for office, but his plea deal unraveling today is already showing up on the Republican 2024 campaign trail. One candidate, Chris Christie, says he has, quote, seen enough 
The former federal prosecutor and governor, former governor of New Jersey, says that the Trump-appointed attorney here, U.S. attorney, on the Hunter Biden case should be fired. And he is calling for a special counsel to oversee any investigations into the Biden family. That, of course, would be a decision for President Biden or for Attorney General Merrick Garland, really. Joining me now is Republican presidential candidate and the governor of North Dakota, Doug Burgum. Good evening, Governor, and thank you for being here. Do you agree with, with Chris Christie that the, the U.S. Attorney David Weiss should be fired? Well, Caitlin, first of all, great to be with you. And what I do know, uh, being on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire, is that uh, the voters on the ground, they're very concerned that we've got a two-tiered justice system, that there's one set of rules for one party and another set of rules for another party. And, and it's not just politics. This actually concerns the foundation of democracy itself. When we start to have uh, a lot of citizens, maybe even majority of citizens, start to question whether, this, whether our institutions of justice are actually fair, uh, that starts to erode democracy itself. And I think one of the things that uh, is missing in this country is trust in our systems. And one of the reasons that, that we're running for president is to make sure that we've got leadership uh, in the White House that can help rebuild that trust and help America focus on the issues that, that matter to every American, like the economy, like energy, like national security. Yeah. Governor, I've heard, you, I've heard you say that before, that you've heard from voters, but do you personally feel that it's a two-tiered justice system? I've never heard you say what you believe on that issue. Well, I, I think we've got plenty of evidence to suggest it is, uh, and and I think that's why there's an, there's enough here that is that causes people to question the system. And part of building trust is, as we did when I was growing up in a small town, you build trust one transaction at a time. You don't you don't you know build relationships over generations with a set of farmers. Uh, if if that you know one. One week uh, you're weighing their wheat and grain at the elevator one way, and the next week you're doing it a different way, or one family gets one set of price for their wheat, another one gets the other, is, you know, word gets out, trust gets eroded, and that's the situation we're in right now, and, and it's uh, serious for our whole country. I guess my question is, is what is the two-tier justice system, system here? Because even Bill Barr, you know, before he resigned as attorney general, said that he did not believe there was a reason to appoint a special counsel for the Hunter Biden investigation. This was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who's in charge of this investigation. So what's the double standard here? I haven't heard anything specific. Well, you just you just had a great uh, panel of experts on uh, talking about this issue and talking about how this whole thing may have been mishandled. I think you've kind of covered the whole topic already. Uh, and again, I think when we're talking to voters, they're saying, wow, you know, if we're going to ha have this under the umbrella of the 2024 election, are we ever going to have any space to have a candidate who can actually have an opportunity to talk about where our country can go as opposed to the problems we've had in the past. We have to have a discussion about the, our future because the country, the future for the United States is just unlimited in terms of what we can do. Our economy should be sprinting instead of crawling. Uh, we should be selling energy to our friends and allies instead of buying them for adversaries. And we should be focusing on innovation. We're in a cold war with China. We're in an actual war with Russia. And we spend all of our time talking about these internal problems. And you know who loves that? China loves that. Because this is how you undermine a democracy, is you get everybody to turn on themselves and start discussing uh, all these issues. And, and we just have to change the focus and say, great, uh, the court's going to have to figure some of this out. But as a country, we got to have a discussion about how we can work together to build better education systems, you know, how to have be safe for kids uh, in schools, to have safe cities where people can yeah. feel they can live in those cities. 
I think that had, the conversation had more to do with the prosecutors and the defense not agreeing eye to eye before they walked into that courtroom today. But let's talk about the 2024 field, because I don't have to tell you, you were in a very crowded field. And we heard from Senator Mitt Romney this week, essentially urging GOP mega donors to get the candidates to agree to withdraw that they're backing if and when it's clear they can't win. He says that date is by February 26th. You're largely funding your own campaign right now. Do you agree with that date? Well, first of all, I'm not largely funding my own campaign. Uh, and two, that date is like a thousand years from now in terms of presidential politics. I mean, all you have to do is look back at the last half a dozen elections and see that the people that were ahead in June or July, the summer before, are not the ones that are ahead uh, in the next January or February. And so we're focused, we're focused on that. And we're just working on making sure that everybody understands who we are, what we're about, and that we care deeply about all Americans, and that we're going to be working to solve the problems like we did in North Dakota, where we cut taxes, we reduced the size of government, we passed 51 out of 52 red tape reduction bills this last year, uh, and we, we drove innovation. And we also are, you know, are producing clean energy. And if you care about the environment, you'd want to have all the energy produced in America, not overseas. And we just, we just want to make sure that we're getting that message out. And as we are, and people are getting to know us, we got to the debate stage this week faster than any other candidate, and we're still virtually unknown. So we know that there's traction for our message, and we're, we're excited to be out you know, telling the story. Yeah, well, just to be clear, when we looked at your campaign quarter halls, it's $10 million of your own money that you have lent your campaign. You endorsed Trump in 2016 and in 2020. You are now running against Donald Trump for the nomination. Did he, did he not live up to your endorsement, or, or what changed and made you want to run against him? Well, I, I think, again, we want to have a candidate that understands the world is changing and the economy is changing right now. Technology changing every job, every company and every industry. And we also know that uh, it's an opportunity for to have a candidate that can focus on the future and not on the past. And and so that's why that's why we're in the race and we're in because we, we care. We care deeply about this country and we care deeply about the people that are here. And we think we competition is good. You're, I mean, I, I would reject the whole premise of this whole discussion is the field is crowded. This is the most important job in the world. And we got, what, seven people that have made the debate stage and maybe 12 have applied. If I was in the private sector and we posted a job that was the most important job in the company and only 12 people applied, we'd sit around and go, maybe we should should repost because we, we, the pool needs to be bigger. Well, I would just say it's a, a crowded field. There have been questions, of course, a bit loud, last time it benefiting uh, Trump in that sense. When it comes to what you just mentioned there about the past versus the future, do you think the legal troubles that are surrounding the former president as he's on the verge of a potential third indictment are a distraction for your party? Well, I think, again, there's an entire industry uh, that likes to discuss uh, the challenges of of you know, past presidents, current presidents. And I think that industry is doing just fine without me. And so I'm gonna keep focused on the things that are important to Americans because you know, people are, they're paying too much for their gasoline. They're paying too much for their heating bill. Uh, they're concerned about uh, Chinese spy balloons coming over the country and Chinese spy bases in, in, in uh, Cuba. Uh, they've got real concerns about our future. And, and, and again, we're out there talking about how we're going to lead the country uh, and not opining. Because, man, I tell you, there's between the cable industry and the social media industry, the amount of clickbait around all of these topics, it's unending. But we're trying to break through and say, let's talk about where we can take this country, because where we can go is actually amazing. Well, those are certainly all important issues. Just as you know, from being on the trail and from having instances, it is often Trump and his issues that are at the forefront of the questions that candidates get. I do want to ask you one question before you go, though, because 
The U.S., as you know, is experiencing a major heat wave right now. I mean, of course, I'm sure you feel it in North Dakota where it's nearly 100 degrees today. A new analysis that was released this week by a global group of scientists found extreme heat waves across three continents this month were made significantly more likely by the human-caused climate crisis. Do you agree that humans are to blame for, what, for what's happening? Well, I know the climate, climate is changing. We know that. Uh, and I'll tell you, in North Dakota, we're the only state that set a goal of being carbon neutral by 2030. But we're not doing it with a bunch of regulations. We said we can get there through no new mandates, no new regulations, all through innovation. And that's happening in North Dakota right now. And, and again, I think if people want to have a discussion, if, they, if CO2 is the cause, then let's get serious about what we can do uh, to reduce that. And again, there's all kinds of things we can do that are more effective than the, 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 the crazy plans that are in place right now. And I say crazy because they don't match economics, physics, or any aspect of, of common sense. If you want to take our country and have it run on all EV vehicles, and then China produces 85% of all the rare earth minerals in the world, we'd just be trading OPEC for Sinopec. And then, of course, what is China? The plants where they make the solar panels in China, where they make the wind blades, where they make the batteries, they're all powered by coal because they're building, they've got 41 coal plants that are being produced. So we can't solve the world's, uh, you know, environmental issues by outsourcing, you know, all of this to a country that has basically no environmental controls and their CO2 view, emissions are going up. Your view on what's driving this, of course, there are different agreements and disagreements about what's the solution, but is your agreement that humans are what's causing this? Well, certainly right now that there's a lot more CO2 going into the air. And if you say, hey, we think CO2 is causing the, 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 uh, the climate change right now, then we should be addressing how do we address CO2? not having some ideological thing where we decide to hamper the U.S. competitiveness and we hand over the future economic of the world to China. We, you know, people start exporting their environmental guilt to somebody else that actually hurts our country and it would hurt the poorest people. It would hurt the people that, that you know, that, that need air conditioning, the people that need heat in the winter, that would need to have manufacturing coming back to our country. And so we, if we're going to have a discussion about what to do about the, the changes in climate, you know, then we ought to have it and make a sense like, what should we do that actually helps our country and helps actually advance the solution? And that's always going to be innovation, not this regulation. You can't add 500,000 EV charging stations and not be able to permit a transmission line. And you can't, okay. you can't use... Okay, Governor, I did hear a yes or no there. I did hear you talk about solutions, but I didn't hear a yes or no on that. But we are unfortunately out of time. Governor Doug Burgum, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Up next, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell freezing mid-sentence and eventually escorted away from the podium on Capitol Hill today. So what happened to the 81-year-old during that news conference? We'll talk about it with a doctor next. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says that President Biden called to check on him tonight after that scary moment when McConnell froze mid-sentence for 23 seconds during a press conference on Capitol Hill. The 81-year-old senator insisting tonight that he's fine. How are you feeling now, sir? Uh, How are you feeling now? I'm fine. Have you seen a doctor? Are you going to Any see idea him? what happened? Huh? Any idea what happened? I'm fine. That's Dehydrated? He says he's fine, but there are still questions tonight unanswered after this moment today where Senator McConnell froze mid-sentence and stared straight ahead. We're on a path to finishing the NDA. Uh, 
this week has been good bipartisan cooperation and a string of Else you want to say, or should I just go back to your office? Mm -hmm. Do you want to say anything else to the press? Twelve minutes elapsed between that moment there and when Senator McConnell made his back way his way back over to the lectern to answer this question from my colleague Manu Raju. Could you address what happened here at the start of the press conference and was it related to your injury from earlier this year where you suffered a concussion? Is that you're fine, you're fully able to yeah. do your job. Yeah. An aide for the senator later said he was lightheaded. I should note tonight he has been seen on the Senate floor. Joining me now to talk about that moment is Dr. Zeke Emanuel, a former Obama White House health policy advisor. Doctor, thank you so much for being here tonight. You know, we can see Senator McConnell there. He's on the Senate floor, clearly doing better. But when you saw that moment play out today, what went through your mind? Uh, well, you have to be concerned about the individual and you hope nothing very serious is happening. Um, and you have to uh, hope that he gets the correct medical attention. What medical attention do you think that is? What kind of test w would you recommend, for example? Well, I think it's unethical for me to comment about his medical situation. I don't know in detail his medical history. I don't know what drugs he's on. I haven't examined him. And I don't know what tests and treatments have already been done. That's for his personal physician to figure out. Um, and his personal physician has a lot more information uh, than just speculating about all the tests. And he knows what tests have been done, say, in March 2023 when he fell and had the concussion. And those would be relevant to determining what happened here. Of course. And I should note, we actually haven't heard from Senator McConnell's office about whether or not he has uh, met with a doctor tonight, but you know when he came back, he said that he felt lightheaded, that he had just stepped away from a moment. He did come back to that question and answer session, which his office noted you know, he did take questions, not just from Manu, but from other reporters on other subjects. Given the fact that he was able to come back and take those questions, what do you read into that without being someone who has treated him? Well, you, <laughs> that whatever it was, it was transitory and uh, doesn't appear, although again, without data, uh, it's hard to say, doesn't appear to have left a permanent problem. But you need the studies before, the history, and you need to conduct additional tests to be totally sure of that. For reporters here in Washington, I mean, ever, McConnell, he's obviously 81 years old. He fell back in March, and it was widely known he suffered a concussion and a rib fracture. Uh, do you have any concerns uh, from just that included with what you saw today, given obviously that was the question of whether or not it could be as a result of that or have any tie to it? It certainly could be connected to it. And again, we don't know enough. I think it does highlight, Caitlin, one of the most important items, which is we need full transparency about the health of our politicians. They are extremely important. They're making world uh, important decisions. 
uh, and we need to have full transparency about their health. President Biden released his full physical exam and uh, we got to see what the doctor saw. Um, but, you know, President Trump was uh, much more cagey. And when he got sick with COVID and was admitted to the hospital, the public was misled by his, his doctor about his situation. And it was only after he left office that we discovered he was very, very sick and maybe even very close to death. Um, you know, that's not the way we should find out uh, the world's most powerful person's health. And Senator McConnell is, uh, you know, the second most important senator in the U.S. Senate. Uh, very, very critical to making the government work, especially at this moment. Uh, we need full information and transparency about the health uh, and well-being of our politicians who are ruling the country. Yeah, I think everyone would second that. Dr. Emanuel, thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Robert F. Kennedy has pushed conspiracies for years, most recently, of course, the anti-Semitic one where he claimed COVID was ethnically targeted to spare Jewish people. Now a top Republican 2024 candidate is saying there could be role for him in his administration in a medical position. We'll tell you who next. Senate Democrats are on the floor tonight protesting their Republican colleague Tommy Tuberville's blanket hold on military pro promotions, which I should note is itself a protest against the Pentagon's abortion policy. All of this is coming. You can see Senator Tuberville there. All of this is coming as former President Trump is now echoing House calls to impeach President Biden. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell weighed in today saying he thinks maybe they should not move forward with that, saying that another impeachment proceeding, in his view, would, quote, not be good for the country. Tonight, my CNN political commentator and former White House senior policy advisor for the Obama administration, Ashley Allison, and Ramesh Panuru is the editor of the National Review and a columnist for the Washington Post are both here tonight. Ramesh, I mean, this is House Republicans, I should note, who are now moving closer than they have before to this idea of impeaching President Biden. But Senate Republicans, not just Mitch McConnell, John Thune as well, obviously are skeptical of it. Well, and I think that there are probably some House Republicans who are skeptical of it as well. Remember, there are about 18 House Republicans who are in districts that Biden carried in 2020, and they probably don't want to be in a position of having to choose between conservatives who want to impeach him and swing voters who in their districts might not want to. I think, though, what we are moving toward is a system where we are more and more going to see when there's a House in one party and a president in the other, you're going to see impeachments and then you're not going to see that carried through in the Senate because you can't get that two-thirds majority that's necessary to convict on an impeachment. This, I think, is going to become the new normal. I mean, is that where we are? I mean, how does the Biden White House handle this? Because the Republicans are moving closer to this, but not that they have more concrete evidence of what they've been alleging about President Biden. They just seem to be moving closer to it. The Biden White House should handle it as they govern. Just ignore it and let them do their... This right here, impeachment from Republicans is throwing red meat to the base that really supports Trump. That's why Trump is, is using it. You know, he hasn't been indicted yet. And when he gets indicted, it seems like his poll numbers skyrocket. When Republicans impeach, perhaps for his base, the, his poll numbers skyrocket. I don't think the Biden administration engages it. They need to continue to focus on the economy, focus on the war in Ukraine, focus on making sure that we, our climate is stable. The issues that the American people really 
care about and that improves their quality of life. And of course, all this is going on as we're also watching what's happening on the 2024 campaign trail. We just heard from Governor Burgum there, but Governor Ron DeSantis today was talking about this idea of maybe having RFK Jr. serve in his administration potentially. This is what he said. Yes, the medical stuff, I'm very good on that. So that does appeal to me, but there's a whole host of other things that he'd probably be out of step with. And so on that regard, it's like, okay, if you're president, you know, sick him on the FDA if he'd be willing to serve or sick him on CDC. Uh, but in terms of being Veep, if there's, you know, 70% of the issues that he may be averse to our base on, you know, that just creates an issue. So he's saying he, he couldn't be serving as vice president, but RK Jr., who is spreading conspiracy theories about COVID-19, sparing Jewish people last week, could serve in the FDA or the CDC? Well, it could be. He didn't specify which medical things he found appealing. It could be that uh, he likes um, RFK's theory that Wi-Fi causes leaky brain, uh, for example, or that antidepressants are behind school shootings. Um, so there's so there's there's room for some follow up questions here, um, but I think that the the and you're joking, of the, course, yes. I want our audience. The, to the be Robert aware of that. F. Kennedy Jr. record on these issues is just unrelieved crack pottery, and it is irresponsible to talk about placing him anywhere near a position of authority, particularly on medical issues. And I say that as somebody who thinks that the CDC in particular, to a lesser degree the FDA, made some serious mistakes during the COVID crisis. Um, But the answer to those problems is not to put somebody with this abysmal track record in charge. And Mike Pence's response to this was not about what RFK Jr. has said, but the idea saying that because he's pro-choice and that he would never put him in his administration because of that reason, not referencing his conspiracy theories. This is really hard. This this is hard for me to wrap my head around. And I, I'll first focus on DeSantis. This is a governor whose state right now is teaching young people that slaves benefited from slavery. And now he's talking about putting a conspiracy theorist in charge of government agencies that deal with medical issues. I am not a Republican, but I even believe Republicans deserve better than Ron DeSantis right now. I don't understand his campaign strategy. It seems like he knows he's failing and he's throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks. But this is not the way you win. Like going, after, going in support of RFK is not how Ron DeSantis wins the Republican nomination. And it's surely not how he's going to win um, the presidency of the United States. On Pence... You were the vice president during COVID, and you're saying you're not going to address the fact that he's talking about putting him again in, tar- in charge of two agencies that deal with medical issues for this country. Instead, you focus on abortion. The Republican field is in real trouble right now, and it's kind of um, disappointing to watch some of the, the way some of these conversations are going down. Ashley Allison, Ramesh Panuru, thank you both for joining me tonight, and happy birthday. (laughs) Today on Capitol Hill, a push for more transparency when it comes to UFOs. My next guest was one of the witnesses that you see there at the table and warned this is an issue of national security. New warnings about UFOs on Capitol Hill. Today, three retired military veterans testified before a House hearing about the increasing risk that they say unidentified objects they believe pose to national security. 
And joining me now is one of the witnesses who was testifying there today, Ryan Graves, a former Navy pilot and runs for Americans for Safe Aerospace, a group that I should note he founded to encourage pilots to report these UAPs. Uh, thank you so much for being here. I, I first want to show people a video. This is something that was released by the Pentagon uh, of something that members of your former squadron saw off the coast of Florida in 2015. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, thank you. I mean, you were a fighter pilot for, for 10 years. Obviously, you've seen some of these objects yourself, you say. Is this something that you believe the U.S. even has in its capabilities? Well, the performance characteristics that we're observing from these objects range from staying stationary in very high winds, Category 4 hurricane winds, to accelerating all the way to Mach 2. Um, these objects are out there all day, uh, and they're coming close to hitting our aircraft. So... No, I'm not, I'm not aware of anything with our arsenal that has those type of performance characteristics, and I'm also not sure why they would be testing such things in our airspace. Yeah, I mean, it's just remarkable to hear you say that, that that's something you don't think the U.S. has the ability to do. When people kind of try to eliminate other things that this could be, you say you don't think that's something the U.S. has in its, in its abilities. Yeah, this is a conversation that, at least in the modern times, we've been having since uh, at least about 2017 or so. Uh, so I would think that if they were testing uh, particular classified um, assets off of the coast of Virginia Beach or elsewhere, they would have ceased to do so after this gained national and international attention. Uh, aviators on the eastern seaboard are still seeing these objects, and they had for a number of years. Yeah, you've been very outspoken on this. Obviously, you didn't only testify today. You've spoken about this publicly before. Do you ever hear from other pilots? Do they ever send you videos uh, of things, of objects that they see? Absolutely. There's not a lot of help right now for commercial air, airline pilots to mitigate this safety risk. They are starting to stand up reporting procedures within the Department of Defense. But again, for commercial aviators, they don't feel like there's any place where they can go to safely report this information. Not only is there not a mechanism to support this, but they also fear for their careers. Uh, they don't want to stick their head above, uh, above the line and, and get chopped down by management. Uh, some of these pilots have received cease and desist orders that prevent them from publicly talking about this topic. Uh, and so I, we really do have a big gap. We're not taking advantage of some of our most trained observers. And for people who, there is a stigma uh, for people who come forward. I think it's changing and it's changed certainly potentially with today's testimony. Do you think your testimony today will, will encourage other people to come forward? Well, I hope so. Uh, I've created Americans for Safe Aerospace, which is a nonprofit uh, that I'm the executive director of. And we've been receiving witness reports uh, from people. And that, that was not our intent, uh, but we are starting to process uh, those witness reports. And we have a pipeline established to communicate uh, that testimony to the Senate Armed Service Committee, uh, as well as potentially arrow uh, should it rise to that level. I how would encourage... It, how would often are you getting reports? We're getting reports almost on a daily basis. Uh, I'm speaking with a number of pilots that have been submitting their reports at safeaerospace.org, and I would encourage your listeners to do the same. Uh, and with that report, we're able to take that information to, to Congress and show just how serious of a problem this is. Given that you testified in front of members of Congress today, and as you and I were noting earlier, sometimes these hearings could, they have a tendency to go off the rails, but uh, clearly both members, both parties felt the need to take this seriously today. What do you want to see the government doing differently going forward, taking this issue more seriously? 
Well, I think we heard it today from members of Congress. There was one thing that there was little argument on, and that was that this represented a matter of national security. Uh, it seems going forward that this is going to be taken with the seriousness it deserves, at least I expect it to. Uh, and I'm eager for Congress to hear more of the background information that Mr. Grush can provide in a closed setting. Lieutenant Ryan Graves, thank you for your testimony today. It was very interesting to hear, and thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you. Up next, new information on the health scare for LeBron James's son, Bronny. Tonight, CNN has learned that just months before he went into cardiac arrest on the court, LeBron James's son, Bronny, underwent a thorough heart exam and multiple tests that all came back normal. That new information coming from a source familiar with the situation, telling my colleague Sanjay Gupta that. Of course, I told Dr. Sanjay Gupta that, that the testing is part of this routine. It's a part of the program for prospective NBA players, and that's why Bronny, John, Bronny James underwent it. Joining me now is CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine, I mean, you have covered so many young star athletes in their time. What went through your head when you first heard about this health scare, but also what we've learned from, from Sanjay that, you know, he just a few months ago was undergoing normal tests? Caitlin, what it shows us is that this is such a shocking and, and unforeseen development that you can think someone's healthy and all of a sudden you can have something that is just can be so catastrophic. We learned that with Damar Hamlin, of course, just six and a half months ago, the Buffalo Bills player. And of course, it was a different situation. But I think one of the very good things out of a terrible situation is, is that the national conversation we're having and the fact that it could really save kids' lives, especially high school athletes, because if people are aware of it and this conversation from Damar Hamlin now to Bronny James, um, obviously, then people will hopefully understand the risks and know they need to learn CPR and they need to have the defibrillators. And in the case of Bronny James, that's exactly what happened. And obviously, he is alive in large part because of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's completely raised the question there. I mean, but the idea that he is, Bronny James, you know, he's an 18-year-old star athlete. You know, his dad always hoped that he they play in the NBA together. What does the conversation look like when you, when you talk about what the future holds for him? That is, of course, the key question. And right now, the James family, from all my sources that I've talked to, they just want to make sure that their son is healthy. And if he they want him to play basketball again. And of course, the hope is he will be able to play. He's an excellent basketball player. And LeBron has always talked about wanting to play with his son someday because they're only 20 years apart in age. And LeBron would like to hang around to make sure he could play with Bronny. So that is a family dream. But right now that is back on the back burner because their real concern is the health and and safety and the well-being of their 18-year-old son. And so there'll be many more tests and we'll figure out how that goes in the future. But Right now, hopefully he will be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll stay on top of it. Christine Brennan, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll be right back. And thank you so much for joining me tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.